Complaining about not achieving success despite working hard is like complaining about an ice cube not melting when you heated it from 25 to 31 degrees. All the action happens at 32 degrees. That was a quote by New York Times best-selling author James Clear of Atomic Habits. And this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. This is Joanne Molinaro, your host. On this week's episode of the podcast, we're going to tackle one of my favorite subjects, failure. So I don't know about you, but I've been doing Peloton, you know, those cycling things for about, I would say, three years. And my favorite trainer, Matt Wilpers, often says that he usually sees the most gains from his least favorite exercises. In his case, it's lateral planks. In the same way, I like to challenge myself to reconsider the things that cause me the most anxiety. And failure is definitely high up on that list. Now, I basically organized my entire life and career around the fear of failure, which, let's be honest, was often interchangeable with the fear of disappointing my parents. But as I started to consider pulling out of my corporate job and starting my own business, I had to get comfortable with the possibility of failing. But this episode isn't just about learning how to fall flat on your face and get back up. It's also about doing what you can to ensure that if and when you fall on your face, maybe it isn't as painful as it could be, something I like to call strategic failing. So without further ado, let's get into it. As a newbie entrepreneur, I sometimes feel as though I am walking beneath the looming shadow of failure, one that threatens to collapse over me at any moment. My fears aren't entirely based on paranoia. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, approximately 20% of small businesses fail within the first two years of opening. That number increases to 45% within five years and 65% in 10. In other words, more than half of small businesses don't make it out alive in the first decade. For the risk averse, these stats are enough to keep one comfortably inside the predictable framework of a steady paycheck. Indeed, it was my abject fear of failure and disappointing my parents, something that goes hand in hand for many of us, that facilitated the success I enjoyed as a lawyer. I've always believed that the only way to not lose was to not just win, but to win by the largest possible margin. Not being last or somewhere in the middle was never good enough. I needed to set the curve in every major endeavor I undertook, from the final exam in Microbio 101 to my very first year at the firm. 
Accordingly, I was compulsive about taking on more work, saying yes to every project, seeking out mentors and feedback on my work product, and making sure that every single person liked me. Towards the end of each year, I'd break down the number of hours I'd need to bill each day in order to meet my billable hours goals and only felt good about myself if I exceeded them. I also joined a practice group, the Bankruptcy and Restructuring Practice Group, based almost entirely upon the fact that no other associate in my class was interested in it, meaning that the path to partnership stretched straight out into the horizon, totally unimpeded and mine for the taking. A compliment that I often receive is, Joanne, is there nothing you can't do? While it's a very lovely sentiment, it glosses over the fact that for most of my life, I've stuck to the straight and narrow, rarely letting myself deviate from the path of least resistance. At nearly every fork in the road, I've taken the path more often traveled, where scores of adventurers have not only cleared the path, but conveniently marked it with signs and guideposts and other helpful tips designed to ensure that I make it safely to my destination with time to spare. A really good example of this is that prior to selecting my legal career, I wanted to be a singer. As it happens, my father's side of the family is really very quite musical. My aunt, my father's younger sister, was a professional singer back in Korea, and my father himself clearly possesses a talent for music. He taught himself how to play Bach by reading a book. But it was my grandmother, my father's mother, who instilled in me a love of music for as long as I can remember. She would sing at night, teaching me and my brother the words to her favorite hymns while we lay in bed, until all our voices, Harmony, me, and my little brother, they wove together and spiraled past the glowing street lamps and out into the stars. Harmony always sang with the authority embedded in those who believed in God because they must. And as a result, her keening vibrato revealed a heart festooned with an unwavering commitment to piety and faith. I guess in some ways, I wanted to sing because I wanted to be more like my grandmother. But it was also because everyone loved me when I sang. Aigu, she has such a beautiful voice, your daughter. They'd praise me at church after a choir solo, and my mother would nod her head and cover her mouth as she laughed daintily at the compliment. Really? She hardly practiced at all. Over the years, I added piano, violin, and even guitar to my repertoire, but I knew that my talent for singing came naturally, while the others did not, and that most others couldn't do what I did with my voice. I started taking voice lessons when I was 13 years old, I was told to wait until after puberty, and teachers and students alike confirmed, wow, you can sing. I routinely secured solos in every choir I auditioned for, singing at Orchestra Hall with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra when I was only 15, and I landed the lead in the school musical both years I was allowed to try out. My parents kept a strict rein on my extracurricular activities, and singing-slash-acting were definitely not on their Tier 1. By the time I set my sights on college, I had a host of conservatories on my short list of dream schools. But it is exactly at this point in the road that I veered hard. First, during my senior year, 
I didn't land the big solo at the annual senior recital, one that I'd sort of taken for granted I'd get all four years of high school. That honor went to my friend Sarah, who, to be honest, was incredibly talented and deserved it. Second, I didn't get into every conservatory or music school I auditioned for. I got into some, Oberlin and Carnegie Mellon, but I didn't get into the one closest to home, Northwestern University. Side note, if I had gotten into Northwestern, I would have enrolled in the music school at the same time Anthony was there for his master's degree, right before he won the Nomberg International Piano Competition. I always get a kick out of imagining whether he would have hit it off in quite the same way if we'd met back then. Third, my parents made it abundantly clear to me that if I chose to major in vocal performance only in college, I'd be doing it on my own. (laughs) Therefore, I had to find a program that allowed me to double major in two totally unrelated disciplines. They reluctantly agreed to support my pursuit of a BA in English. At the time, this was not as common as it is today and often required that I build two separate curricula from scratch. My parents' unwillingness to support a career in singing was a hurdle, for sure, but probably not one I couldn't have cleared with the same sort of determination I had when running the 50-yard dash in fifth grade. The barrier I couldn't overcome, though, was the self-doubt that suddenly emerged when I was no longer getting all the solos, when the doors weren't all swinging wide open for me, when the world out there seemed unacquainted with maybe even indifferent to, my track record. When I got my first bitter taste of failure. Who knows what would have happened had I pressed ahead and pursued my love of singing. In my head, I saw myself as a starving artist, hopping around from audition to audition, waiting tables at some dingy diner in New York City, rarely gracing the stage, and even then, only as part of the background, never as the star I dreamt of being virtually my entire life. Throughout college, and even years later, to the extent I'd look back with so much as an ounce of regret, I'd remind myself that had I gone to New York City and pursued a career in singing— I would never have gotten together with my first husband, the then love of my life, and therefore I'd indisputably made the right choice in choosing to stick with a good old Bachelor of Arts, followed by a career in big law. Speaking of lawyering, by the time I graduated college, the instinct to prevent failure was honed to a sharp point, one that jabbed at me every time I scoured the classifieds for the words now hiring or entry level. After one year of voice lessons with a vocal performance major in college, I'd completely dismantled my melodic dreams and replaced them with the stodgy brown brick durability of adulting. I needed a solid 9 to 5 that came with a decent paycheck, good benefits, and respectability. After a few months as a resume writer, I decided to try for law school, not because of any burgeoning desire to enter the hallowed halls of justice. I chose law because it was the least daunting option of the three degrees I considered, MD, MBA, or JD. I knew I'd faint at the sight of blood and that I hated selling things. That left just law. The fact that I liked to argue a lot, according to my mom, was just a bonus. Why did I leave myself with so few career options? Because each of them had a pretty self-determined path, with very little room for discretion and thus error, particularly in law. 
While it was possible I wouldn't be able to clear all the hurdles set out in front of me, at least I would know exactly where each of them lay and just how high they'd be. First, take the LSAT. Then, get into law school. Do well enough in law school to get a summer internship followed by a full-time offer. Pass the bar exam. Do well enough at the firm to not get fired and one day make partner. The path was so freaking clear and detailed to such a degree of granularity. It was like I could see every blade of grass that dotted the road from where I stood all the way to sweet retirement. Armed with that level of information so far in advance, I could give myself every chance at being able to reach the finish, relatively intact, and with a very nice 401k to boot. With each passing obstacle, I'd barely give myself a minute to celebrate. When I got into my number one choice for law school, I did the happy dance with my then-boyfriend, now ex-husband, in the corridor outside the small legal office I paralegaled at during the summer before classes. When I received a full-time offer from the firm, I stood outside my parents' Wilmette house, put one hand on the telephone pole at the end of our driveway, while turning the other into a fist that shook at the sky like Rocky. When I passed the bar, I let out a huge sigh of relief and laughed as I watched my dad jump around in his pajamas at three in the morning when the results finally loaded on the ARDC's website. And when I finally made partner, I made a reservation for one at the posh restaurant of the Peninsula Hotel, enjoyed a tray of British scones with fresh clotted cream, a basket of piping hot french fries, and a bottle of Diet Coke before heading back to the office. I told myself that this is the dream. You've done everything you're supposed to do. Your parents are so proud of you. It was so much easier to believe that all the wins were authoritative confirmations that I was on the path I should be, that I was meant to be. But here's the truth. It wasn't the blinking lights of success that beckoned me forward. Nope. Failure just never quit chasing me. The fear of failing and all that failure would entail shame, embarrassment, guilt, waste, and most agonizingly, being alone kept me inside of a relationship that was toxic nearly from the get-go. As evidenced by how quickly and angrily I dismissed my parents' well-founded fears about my impending nuptials, I channeled all the single-minded, fear-fueled determination that catalyzed my career path into my love path. But unlike my career... My marriage was a big, honking failure. But I can think of no more profitable failure in my entire freaking life. One of my favorite quotes about failure comes from David Goggins. In every failure, a lot of good things will have happened, and we must acknowledge them. There's a temptation to call my first marriage a success, or at least not a failure, but let's be real here. By definition, marriage is supposed to be until death do you part. I walked down an aisle lined on either side with big red flags and chose to see right past them, repeating to myself, love is enough. We made it about eight years before we separated, nine years before we divorced. Of all the choices I've made in my life, getting married that first time around remains the most susceptible to regret. But, as Mr. Goggins suggests, acknowledging the good from that failure 
is important. According to another David, David Epstein, the more confident a learner is of their wrong answer, the better the information sticks when they subsequently learn the right answer. Tolerating big mistakes can create the best learning opportunities. One of the most important good things that came out of my mistakes was finding a romantic partner who would not only go toe-to-toe with me, but who would never feel threatened by my ambition or drive. However intolerable my mistakes seemed at the time, the lessons they taught me were indeed indelible, without which it's entirely likely I would not be sitting here today, happily married to the man I considered to be my partner in the truest sense of the word. Perhaps more important though, other than learning how not to fall in love, as I've talked about before, my failed marriage offered me an opportunity to rediscover myself. And by that, I don't just mean the person I used to be before I entered that relationship, but the woman who emerged from it. Last week, I talked about how I've started using an app that allows me to journal via voice note and how this has facilitated a strange but surprisingly pleasant friendship with myself. It's fostered an unusual sort of kindness, one that I can't ever remember extending towards the girl I see in the mirror. And there's a distinct sense of fondness I bear for the young woman who walked out the front door of her townhouse in Wheeling, Illinois, because I can remember how fragile she felt, how much her heart shook as she gripped the handle of her suitcase and told herself that if she had the strength to walk away from a marriage in shambles, she'd someday find the courage to build a life of purpose. Now, while there's a lot of good that can come from failing, I don't think anyone would advise you to start something with the goal of failing. (laughs) I do think there's value in strategic failing. I've talked about this before in the context of dream chasing, but it bears repeating that for dreams to truly bloom, you need to plant them in safety while also giving them time to grow. Sure, there are plenty of legendary success stories out there about people who threw caution to the wind and went all in on their dreams with zero safety net or contingency plan, while mortgages, healthcare, and food on the table hung in the balance. But what we rarely ever think about, much less hear about, are the many millions of dreamers who shelved their passions because they were, understandably, too frightened to fail. If we tell people that the only way to make their dreams come true is to give up everything that makes them feel safe, a narrative I hear too often pushed on Shark Tank, can we blame them for not even trying? Call me pedantic or lawyer, but I think there's value in removing just some of the pressure to go all in and say, instead, bet reasonably. It's far more, quote, tolerable to make mistakes when you have some money set aside in savings, a job that still pays the bills, or a plan B that's ready to be deployed if plan A goes south. Given my serious aversion to failure, gathering data and building myself a safety net was the only way I could develop the gumption to finally say farewell to all the things that until that point provided me with financial security and the respectability I'd craved. 
While that certainly doesn't exclude folks who don't have a sturdy safety net from going after it, it also doesn't mandate that you risk losing it all. I'm not ashamed of the fact that I spent several years nursing my hobby while I worked a full-time job. That for many years, I literally laughed at people who suggested I might make a living from recipe development and food blogging. That even when I was offered a lot more money than I thought was possible to write a book containing my hobby, I still didn't think seriously about turning something I loved to do into a career. I felt I had too much to lose at the time, but in retrospect, it was simply that I needed more time to get comfortable with the possibility of failure. Towards the end of 2020, less than a year before my book was due to be published, I went out for a run and once more went through the numbers. I like doing math while I run. It passes the time. By the numbers, I mean all sources of reasonably foreseeable income from the Korean vegan. It was an exercise I'd repeated hundreds of times by then, but I did it again with the hope that this time it would somehow give me the reassurance I'd yet to feel about the possibility of leaving the partnership at my firm. When it didn't work, surprise, I tried something else. I asked myself, okay, if everything goes to shit and you're literally living out of a cardboard box, Anthony has divorced you and you've got nothing left, then what happens? I continued to put one foot in front of the other on the lakefront path, huffing and puffing, but with my heart rate steady and said to myself, I'd figure it out. Sometimes the time needed to build your safety net isn't necessarily for saving more cash, analyzing more data, or coming up with a backup plan. It's the time you need to realize that the most enduring safety net in all the world is you. Well, I hope this discussion on strategic failure together with examples from my own life has provoked not just a little introspection, but also given you a little hope, perhaps even a little nudge to do that thing you've been too afraid to fail at. Failure may not be an option, but it can be a consequence. But here's the good news. Getting back up? That is always an option. So moving on to this week's Ask Joanne, for those of you who don't know, I invite my listeners as well as newsletter subscribers to submit a question on which they're seeking advice, and it can be on just about anything. This week, Aria has a real doozy for us and one that's eerily similar to the stories I've just shared. Aria says, I've been learning Indian classical music for about nine years now. I'm currently a sophomore in high school. And for as long as I can remember, everyone's told me I'm a good singer. I just got subjects, was naturally good at pretty much everything I wanted to do. Spending years like that kind of made my self-worth dependent on how good I was at things. So when things naturally became harder, I hit a roadblock. Earlier this week, 
I auditioned for a higher level of chorus at my school and was reassured by everyone again that I was a great singer and would definitely make it. I didn't. It's beyond mortifying that I gave my all in front of a group of people who see me in the hallways at school every day and was still one of the only people to be rejected. This is really dramatic, but it feels like someone ripped a piece of me out, put it under a microscope and inspected it, and then pulverized it and threw it into an incinerator for good measure. How do I convince myself that I'm more than my failures? Well, Aria, I don't think you're being overly dramatic at all. As we discussed in last week's podcast, it's very easy to fall into the trap of defining ourselves based upon how others see or value us. Thus, when the perception shifts, especially in an unexpected way, it's not surprising that we start pondering some of life's most fundamental and somewhat distressing questions. Who am I? And what does it all mean? It's easy to become particularly susceptible to this when you've yet to come up against your own Goliath and thus haven't had your sense of self-tested in any challenging way. The instinct to define yourself by your failures, as you say, is once more ceding to the habit of being defined by how everyone in the school hallways, in chorus, or even at home sees you. Let's imagine that all those folks can be embodied into a single person, the person who represents all the people who thought you'd make it into this higher level chorus and who are now purportedly realizing that you're not as good as they had thought. I'm not saying that's the case, but let's assume so for this exercise. Give that person a name and then tell them, hey, insert name, thanks for your input. I understand where it's coming from, but I'm going to need you to shut up for a minute. Okay, thanks. And then ask yourself the following. Do you think you're still good at singing? Presumably over the years, you must have learned something about what good singing is and what good singing isn't. Lean into that knowledge and experience and ask yourself honestly if something has suddenly changed and you're not actually the singer you thought you were. Chances are, you know deep down exactly how good you are. Do you enjoy singing? If so, list all the things you actually like about singing, separate and apart from receiving praise for being good at it. What kind of music do you enjoy? Do you enjoy Indian classical music, or is it merely the type of music at which you excel? Are there any other instruments you like, perhaps even more than singing? What do you enjoy doing that has nothing to do with music? Do you like reading, writing, dancing, running, video gaming, cooking, drawing? What are you good at besides singing? Are you a good listener? Are you skilled at problem solving? Do you have a knack for making friends? Are you the person that people go to when they want to have fun, when they need a helpful hand, or when they want a shoulder to cry on? And what are you indisputably bad at? Are directions not your thing? Do you get lost easily? Okay, I might be projecting here a little bit. Do you burn things in the oven more often than not? Are your essays always full of typos? Do you find yourself losing your patience over small things or maybe letting people walk all over you even when you know you shouldn't? As I've advised in the past, my recommendation is that you not just ponder these questions, but write out your thoughts. It doesn't have to be coherent or even legible. Use bullets and lists if you need to. You're not going to share this with anyone. Or maybe it might even be interesting to record your answers in your own beautiful voice. 
The point is this, Aria. Exploring the outer bounds of these questions will force you to start sketching the boundaries of you, getting very familiar with the line that separates you from everyone else in the world. Because at the end of the day, you and I both know that whether you make this choir now or later doesn't really matter in the long run if you are able to come back to yourself each day and say quite confidently, I really rather like who I am. Wishing you all the best. Thanks, Aria, for submitting your question to Ask Joanne. It is remarkable how many things we had in common. We actually picked, and by we, I mean my husband and I actually picked your question after I had written the proceeding. So it was so crazy how many times I felt like, man, it's like Aria's living my story all over again. So thank you very much for being so honest and so vulnerable with me and with the Korean vegan community. If you have a question like Aria on which you're seeking advice, and it really can be about anything, I encourage you to check out the show notes below and hit the link, Ask Joanne. All right, this week's updates and random things is going to start off with a giveaway alert. Yes, you heard that correctly. We are doing another major giveaway. So this past week, I got to see the legendary Tabitha Brown at the final stop of her Cooking with the Spirit book tour here in Los Angeles. Because I ordered her book as soon as it was announced, because I am that kind of somewhat stalkery fan of Tabitha Brown, I now have two extra signed, signed copies, guys, to give away. Registrants from all over the world are welcome and the winners will be announced in next week's podcast. So make sure you subscribe if you haven't already and tune in next week if you want a chance to win a signed copy of Miss Tabitha Brown's cookbook. All right, what I'm watching, as I've mentioned before, Anthony is now studying very hardcore, like seriously all the time, for an Italian language test this December in Rome. Accordingly, we've decided to rewatch some of our favorite Italian dramas, and on deck at the moment is Il Processo, The Trial. It's a legal drama centered around the narrative of a young prosecutor who is attempting to build a murder case against the daughter of a wealthy and well-connected businessman. The show takes you on a total, and I mean total, roller coaster without feeling overdone or manipulative. It's eight episodes total, and each episode is less than an hour long, so it's a real easy lift. I totally recommend this show. It's so good. It actually was better on my second watching of it because I had already walked into it with a little bit of background knowledge, but amazingly had no idea how it ended. And it is a super suspense thriller type thing. And I was like, I literally have no idea who did it. (laughs) Maybe that speaks more to my senility than it does to the show. (laughs) 
Speaking of signed books, as I mentioned last week, we saw the one-year anniversary of the Korean vegan cookbook just recently, and I had a chance to stop by Now Serving LA, a cookbook store here in Los Angeles in Chinatown, actually, and I got to sign their entire stock of the Korean vegan cookbook. So it is never too early, folks, to get a start on your holiday shopping. And if you know anyone, like anyone, who doesn't have a copy of the Korean vegan cookbook, I mean, come on, they should have a copy in their hands for the holidays. So go ahead and pick up your copy from Now Serving LA. There is a link to them in the show notes below what I'm cooking. So in case you missed it this week, I made Korean radish kimchi stuffed onigiri or rice triangles that I subsequently stuck in the air fryer for a little crispy crisp on the outside. They're so good. I made them three times in the past week. (laughs) They're that good. (laughs) Anthony has proclaimed this to be among one of his favorite things that he's eaten of all the things that I've made for him. And so I think you really need to try them. (laughs) They're really, really easy to make and they're very, very yummy. I just posted the recipe on my Instagram, but of course, I will be adding it to the Korean Vegan Meal Planner. For those of you who need a little reminder, yes, I do have an app that you can download by clicking on the link below that houses all of the recipes that you ever hear me talk about, including this Korean radish kimchi stuff onigiri. It will be added to the meal planner this week, as well as the pastas that I make, the potatoes that I make, the vegan sandwiches that I make. They're all going to be in there. All you need to do is click on the link below and it will take you to where you can check it out. And that concludes our updates and random things, which brings us to, of course, parting thoughts. There's a powerful Buddhist precept that provides that desire and ignorance lie at the root of all suffering. Now, obviously, you can't get rid of all of your desires. (laughs) For example, the desire to eat and stay alive, those things are very important. This concept is directed at those wants and yearnings that, at the end of the day, bring us little actual joy. Isn't it funny how badly we want things that do so little for us? I'm reminded of how when I was very young, I was obsessed with collecting as many stickers as I possibly could for my sticker collection. I would literally go to bed each night clutching my sticker book to my chest and dream of winning sheets and sheets of pastel-colored stickers shaped like unicorns and care bears and glittering stars. I got it into my head in that way that children sometimes do, that everything in my life would somehow click into place If only I could fill in every last square inch of my sticker book with more stickers. But when I finally did, and subsequently leafed through each heavy page, I realized that the stickers, upon closer examination, were cheap, already beginning to wrinkle and fade, and that this collection that I thought I'd be so very proud of was, in fact, not very meaningful at all. And just like that, I never cracked it open again. How many of you can relate? How many of you have seen this exact same thing play out with one of your own little ones? However many sticker books we've thrown by the wayside, the instinct often remains intact into adulthood, 
Replace sticker books with designer bags and shoes. I'm definitely guilty of this one. That massive bucket of ice cream that's screaming at you from the fridge. Or even that person you know isn't good for you, but sometimes makes you feel good for a few hours or minutes. Don't get me wrong. All of these things can actually help soothe you. And they have their place in the world. No one is going to take my Ben and Jerry's out of my house. (laughs) But these wants can sometimes mask a much more critical desire, one that should not go unaddressed for too long. When I was working as a mid-level associate at the firm, I would award myself periodically with retail therapy. Retail therapy is effective. It can make you feel better, not just when you buy the thing, but every time you look at the thing. I used to take a break every now and again from work just to stare at this pretty pink Prada bag I just acquired and it would literally make me feel better. Like I would tell myself, Ugh, this soul sucking job that's keeping me at my desk at 1137 PM while normal people are at home, either asleep or watching TV. It's all worth it because of this Prada bag. The fact that I could stand aside and watch myself believe this lie told me all I needed to know. My soul was hungry, and I was feeding it junk food. When we think about successful people, they too often tend to look alike. Rich, influential, fancy cars, fancy friends, private jets. And when we see this image of success depicted on social media, that same sticker book instinct can threaten to rear its ugly head, leading us to think that we need those things too. How easy it becomes to fall into that rat race when the accoutrements of success become the goal themselves. But when you step back for a moment and ask yourself, is this really what success looks like for me? For me, being able to wake up on a Sunday morning, enjoy a cappuccino with Anthony, while peeling apart the perfect vegan croissant in preparation for our daily wordle, that comes to mind. Wanting financial security isn't the same thing as wanting to fly private jets. So ask yourself, assuming you have enough money to live comfortably, what feeds your soul? What gets you excited each day? What motivates you to be a better person? What challenges you to grow? And what kind of impact do you want to leave on this one precious planet of ours? In other words, consider exchanging success for purpose. Thanks everyone for joining us for another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. If you enjoyed listening today, do me a favor and hit that subscribe button if you haven't already and leave a comment and a rating below. All of those things help so very much. If there was something particularly inspiring about this episode, I encourage you to share it with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your loved ones, or even on social media. In the meantime, until next week, have a lovely day and wonderful day.